0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. What we have in Jesus, you can't compare it to any other good. If the devil were to take you by the hand up onto a very high mountain, just as he did to our Savior, and show you, all the kingdoms of the world and their glory in a moment of time and offer you all of these if you'd bow the knee to worship, if you'd simply give up Christ, you would be out of your mind to consider that bargain for one second. I don't know what dreams and desires fill your heart this morning. We're all different. You all have different ones. What are your highest ambitions in life? Most of us will have the misfortune of never reaching those highest ambitions. Sorry. Some of you will have the misfortune of reaching them and realizing that they were just dirt. Family's a blessing. Career, it's wonderful. A fulfilling job, children who are compliant. These are great things. Financial security, it's wonderful. But when you set it beside the blazing glory of Jesus Christ, it's nothing. And if in any way any of that keeps you from Jesus Christ, it's worse than nothing. As Paul said, it's just rubbish. Pearls are great, but when you set them beside the pearl of great price, you could sell them all and lose nothing. Your possessions, wonderful. But when you find that one treasure hidden in the field, Christ Himself, if you were with joy to go and sell everything else you have and buy that field and obtain that treasure, you would not be the loser by it. You would eternally be a winner. With Christ, other blessings are blessings, but they're not necessary. They're great, but you don't need them. There's only one thing you need. You need Christ. We have to step back sometimes from our day-to-day pursuits. We live in this world. We go to work. We take care of our yard. We live in this world. Wonderful. I'm not saying we should go hide out in the mountains somewhere like a hermit. No. We live in this world, but sometimes we need to step aside from our day-to-day pursuits and just ask ourselves the questions. Do we believe the things that we sing on Sunday mornings? Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to His blood. Do you? Do you? Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Would you? As one old fiery revivalist put it, we're Christians, we don't tell lies, we sing lies. Do you mean those things? Were the whole realm of nature mine? It were an offering far too small. Do we believe that about Christ this morning? You can have all this world, give me Jesus. More positively put, it's my task today, and privilege really, to remind all of us Not so much how unimportant everything else in your life is, but really to remind you of the great wealth that you possess in Christ. That if you have Christ, you already have the world and all worlds, the whole universe and any potential universes. If you have Christ, then you have God, and if you have God, then in God you possess all there is. I'm sure that your hobby, that you're very interested in right now, is interesting. I'm not trying to diminish it. But let me remind you that Christ, quote, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Your hobby's not. I don't mean to disparage your career, but... By Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. So he's better, you understand? And I'm not trying to minimize your interest in the fire of politics right now. But let me remind you that Christ is before all things, and in Him, all things hold together. I'm not an extremist. I'm a realist. Christ is all and more than all, and everything else is so minuscule in comparison. It doesn't feel that way. That's why I have to remind you and me through the Word this morning that that is the fact. That is true. Not exaggerated. Understated, if anything, you were created for Christ. And your soul cannot be satisfied with anything less than Christ. And if you feel unsatisfied, perhaps you've been trying to fill it with something other than Christ. The significance of Christ is the subject of our text today in 1 John chapter 2. Here in verses 20 through 25. You might remember that John, the beloved apostle, is urging his readers not to be led astray. There was a split that had happened in their church where some had departed. From the teaching about Jesus, they had started to teach a different Jesus, one who had not really come in the flesh as a man, but just either appeared to or something else. They had started to get different views of who Jesus was, and they left the fellowship of the saints, and they were beckoning them, come over here. A cult had started. A false teaching about Jesus had started. Very appealing at that time to the Greek thinking mind, and John is writing to those who stayed. And he's saying, you don't need anything that they have to offer you. If you have Christ, you have everything. So hold on to Christ. He's all you need. Let's see that here at 1 John 2. Let's begin here in verse 20. But you have been anointed by the Holy One. And you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you don't know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie is of the truth. Who's the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. Eternal life. We are talking about eternal life today. That's the promise. You saw that in the last verse? This is the promise from God. Eternal life. And Jesus defined eternal life not just as living on forever, although it includes that, but he defined eternal life as knowing God through Jesus, the Son of God. I think in our passage, really the heart of all we're going to say, because you can tell there are a lot of things said in these few verses, but the organizing center is right here in verse 23, whoever confesses the son has the father also. Chapter 5, this confessing the son, John is going to describe it as having the son, so really the main argument that John's making and that we're going to focus on today is if you have the Son of God, if you have Christ this morning, then you have the Father. You have God. You see that in the verse? That's what he says. If you confess the Son, if you have the Son, you have the Father. It's the center of this verse. It's the center of life itself. What more is there? When you have the Father, then what's next? What do you attain after having God? (laughs) Nothing. So you can see how extremely important it is if the way to have God is is and only is to have Christ. How important it is to have Christ. If you have Christ, you have God. And if you have God, you have everything. Everything. In the context that this is presented, and as I said, there were false teachers, so this has to be reasserted. You may not have the same kinds of false teachers trying to lure you away from Christ to let go of the hope that you have in Him. You do have some false teachers, but you certainly have many beckonings from the world, many distractions. The ones you were thinking about while we were singing. I don't judge you, but you know you were. The distractions you have in this world that lure you away from Christ. John is stating in the midst of your distractions, no, Christ. If you have Him, you have God, and there is nothing more. There's no higher goal to attain. Like we saw when we went through Philippians, that Paul said, everything else I count as rubbish, what? So that I may gain Christ. If you have Him, you have all. As he'll say at the end of this letter, Christ is the true God and eternal life. He is the eternal life promised to us. Now, if verse 23 there is the center. What do we do with all the verses around it? Because there's a lot. We're going to organize it this way. If you look at the verses that come before, the first two verses, 20 and 21, those verses point us toward Christ because there John is talking about how the Holy Spirit leads believers to the true Christ. So in those verses, we are led by the Spirit to Christ, (laughs) to have Him. The verses that come after verse 23, verses 24 on Those are telling us that we are led to the true Christ by the Word, to us by Scripture. So you see the verses before, they're pointing to Christ by the Spirit. Verses after, they're pointing to Christ by the Word. Be led by the Spirit to Christ. Be led by the Word to Christ. And right there in the middle, don't listen to those false teachers with their fake Christ. If you have the true Christ, you have everything. To have the Son is to have the Father. So all of this passage, it's like some great tarp with a heavy weight, a ball put in the middle. It's all leaning down toward that center that is Christ. But we'll look at the things around. We will start by looking how we are led in this passage toward Christ by the Spirit and the Word. And then finally, we'll look at how we are urged to have Christ. We're led to Him. We're urged to have Him. So let's look at our passage in that light. First, you are being led by this passage today toward the Son, toward Christ. And you are led toward Christ first by the Spirit. So here's verses 20 and 21. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you don't know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie is of the truth. That but, which begins this passage, tells us to look back at the verses we considered last week. And you remember that it talked about those who had gone out from the fellowship, and John called them antichrists. These were false teachers and their followers, who had been a part of the church, developed a different view of Christ, really of a different Christ, then had left the church, and now, like sirens, were calling back to those still in the fellowship, saying, hey, you've got Christ all wrong. Come over here. We now understand who Christ really is. Now, just what these false teachers thought about Christ, we can guess from this letter itself and from the context. We can guess at their error if we look over in chapter 4. There, John says... By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that doesn't is not from God. Notice in chapter 4, he's going to clarify those who left, what were they teaching about Christ? What are they calling these believers to come and accept about Christ? He says, what they deny, the main thing to deny is that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, in a body, an actual body. So we don't know more detail than that, but if we look back in history, it makes a lot of sense because what we do know for sure is that not long after this letter was written, many Christians were lured away from Christ to a false kind of Christian teaching known as Gnosticism, which we've mentioned before, But to keep things very brief, Gnosticism was a sort of set of beliefs that really appealed to the Greek way of thinking. Gnosticism, if we can summarize what it would teach about Jesus, it would say there was the divine Christ and there was a human Jesus, just like us. But at the baptism of Jesus, the divine Christ came down upon the human Jesus And then, before this human Jesus went to the cross, the divine part of him left, and he died. You say, why would someone ever come up with that kind of idea? (laughs) It's because to the Greek mind, the body, the flesh, was very bad. It was, in fact, the main problem we have. The spirit, that's good. The body is bad. So when Christians came saying, Christ, who is Christ? He is God united with our human nature in the flesh born of the virgin mary the incarnation that means god became a man to you and i we celebrate that on christmas but to the greek culture that was an embarrassment because the human body the flesh it was evil how could god who is pure spirit be joined to our evil human bodies so the way they worked around that was that's not christ Let's say instead that Christ is this divine spirit, but he comes upon this human man. And then before he suffers or anything gross like that, he goes away. Because that's beneath this divine Christ to suffer on a cross. That's terrible. So you can see how influenced by their culture, these false teachers, these Gnostics, they left their first view of Christ and they came up with a new one that made more sense to the way they thought. It didn't clash so much with their culture. It was very natural to the Greek way of thinking at that time. There were others who were called Docetists. They were similarly inspired by the culture to just say, well, actually what happened was that it just looked like Christ had a body. Docetus, It looked like he had a body, but he didn't actually because he was a spirit. That's why at the end of John's gospel, you see Jesus eating fish in front of them saying, look, I have a body, (laughs) make sure you understand, it's a real body. However they did it, the Gnostics or the Docetists or whoever John is dealing with here, these false teachers, that's something of what they came to deny in Jesus. They were certainly not denying Jesus, they were a Christian breakaway. What they were denying is that He had come in the flesh, the incarnation, the two natures, human and divine, joined together in the womb of Mary and now forever You need to keep this background in your mind as we're looking at this passage that we're looking at. Because as John writes this, his concern is that these readers not be swept away by the culture into this more comfortable way of thinking about Christ. How can John be confident? Him at a distance. There they are. Christianity very small at that time. How can he be confident they won't be sucked away into some false way of thinking? How can you be certain, Christian though you are, when you are surrounded by so many Christian perversions, so many heresies, so many false teachings everywhere in the world, how can you know that you're going to hold to the true Christ and not let go of this most valuable pearl? How do you know? John says, take comfort. Take comfort because you, Christian, are led to hold on to Christ by the Holy Spirit. You have been anointed, he says, by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. Right now, probably the strongest pull of culture for any of us away from a true view of Christ would be what we call pluralism or relativism. It's the idea that there's so many religions in the world, and even within Christianity, there are so many points of view about Jesus, it's almost bewildering, that certainly God is generous enough that as long as somebody tries hard within their own system of belief and is very sincere, certainly we have to say that God is going to accept them on that basis. You can't be so narrow-minded as to say, no, it has to be Christ as presented here according to these doctrines, that's the pull of our culture away from Christ, to come to accept Christ as a very good man, as some sort of immortal myth even, as some great figure that we should look to that should inspire us, but not a Christ who excludes in any way genuine Hindus or Muslims or Christians of other persuasions from entering into the kingdom. If you hold that view, you're considered very intolerant and very exclusive. What is going to protect you? from being drawn away from Christ as he's presented in Scripture, even as culture is polling and polling you, you have been anointed by the Holy One. And you all have knowledge. John isn't writing to you because you don't know the truth, but because you know it by the Spirit. You know it. And you know that no lie, no false teaching, none of this pluralism for them, none of the Gnosticism, you know it's not of the truth. That truth and lies are separate. Whatever the relativistic culture says, blend them together. No, they're separate. You know that. How do you know that? How will you go on knowing that? You have been anointed by the Holy One. Now, what does it mean to be anointed by the Holy One? First, Holy One here could refer either to God the Father or Jesus, God the Son. Because in the New Testament, both are called the Holy One and the Old. So, it could be Father or Son And you have an anointing. They've anointed you if you're a Christian. Anointing literally is taking oil and putting it on your head. That's anointing. You say, I don't think God's ever done that to me. Well, it comes to be a picture of something more significant. In the Old Testament, anytime God would set apart a person for a special work, He would have them anointed with oil. So if someone was to be a prophet or a priest or a king, Or a judge. God would have them anointed with oil for their special work that they were doing. In the New Testament, the idea of an anointing continues, but it's just now a picture. You don't actually have to have oil on your head. It is a picture when God sets a person apart for himself for a special work. Christ himself, his name, Christ, you know what that means? One who's anointed. That's what Christ means. He's set apart by God for a special work. As we try to figure out what does it mean to be anointed like that by God, if you look in verse 27, which we'll see next week, he gives us a hint. He says, the anointing you received from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone, meaning any of those false teachers, should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it's taught you, abide in Him. So the very least we can say about this anointing is that it teaches you truth. So you say, okay, if God sets a person apart for some special work, what does He give that person that teaches that person to walk in the truth? <laughs> Hopefully you know the answer, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, which is why almost... Everyone agrees that that is what John is talking about right now in this passage. We can see this connection between anointing and the Spirit through Scripture. We won't spend a lot of time here, but just so you know, so you can be confident that this is true, think of Jesus the Christ himself on earth. When he said that Isaiah 61 was fulfilled in him, he said, quote, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. God anointed Jesus, here's your special task, proclaim good news. Therefore, he says, the Spirit's upon me, because when God appoints someone to a special work, he makes sure they're equipped for it. In this case, he gives the Spirit. Acts 10, Peter speaks of how, quote, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. So this anointing you have... Is the Holy Spirit, if there's any doubt left in your mind, just remember that he's going to tell us next week, this anointing teaches you. That's the exact role Jesus says the Holy Spirit has in our life. Consider it with the apostles themselves. Jesus had promised when they stood on trial, quote, the Holy Spirit will teach you. Verse 27, the anointing teaches you. Jesus says the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say, And of course, you're probably aware of the Spirit's role in the apostles in writing Scripture. Jesus said, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. And that's how we have the Scriptures, through the apostles. What's amazing in this passage that we're reading today is that This anointing is not just for Jesus the Christ. He had the Spirit to help him. And the anointing is not just for the apostles. They had the Spirit to guide them to write Scripture and to give testimony to Christ. But John claims that every one of you in this room who is truly a believer, you yourself have this anointing, which is the Holy Spirit, to teach you. But you, that's a you, you, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. John is not trying to downplay the importance of human teachers. After all, he's writing them a letter as a teacher teaching them. You understand that? Some people will take a verse like this and go start a strange Christian cult saying, we don't need the Bible. We just have the Spirit to teach us all these things. The Spirit teaches us through the Bible. And John himself is writing a letter to them. So he's not trying to say, I'm not writing this because you don't know the truth, so throw this letter away. You already know it. But he's saying, but there is an act of the Holy Spirit inside you that makes sure that if you're a believer, you stay focused on the true Christ, that you don't wander away into the error of the false teachers. How could John's readers be kept from wandering away? from the incarnate God, Jesus Christ. As their old companions, their old friends are calling them, hey, that's such an odd view of Christ you have. Come over here. All of culture, its tide is pushing them, like standing in a river up to here, and the current is pushing them toward adopting a different view of Christ, one that's less uncomfortable. How are they going to stand there? Because you have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit invisibly and imperceptibly teaches true believers to reject false views of Christ. Because the role of the Spirit, more than almost anything else in this age, is to direct our attention to Christ. The true Christ. To teach us to look to Him. Now you might say, well how does the Holy Spirit teach us? In two ways. Inspiration. And illumination. Those are the two ways the Holy Spirit teaches you. Inspiration is something that already happened. It's not ongoing. It's what happened. Jesus said what happened with the apostles. The Holy Spirit inspired this. The Holy Spirit guides you through the word he inspired. Don't throw it away. This points you to Christ. But it's more than just this. Many atheists have read this. The Holy Spirit also illumines as we read Scripture, as we think of its truths, the Spirit opens our hearts to see Christ here. So be led to Christ by the Spirit. This leads pretty naturally into our next subpoint. Be led to Christ by the Spirit, say the verses before, and now the verse after. Be led to Christ by the Word. See verse 24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. As we've seen before, when John uses the word beginning, it can mean a lot of different kinds of beginnings. But thankfully, in this verse, it's pretty obvious what he means. He means. Let the word that you heard when the gospel first came to you and you first heard it, let that same gospel stick with you. They've adopted some new view of Jesus over there. Don't go with them. Stick to the original message that you have heard. This is the thing about false teaching, and you probably are aware of it, that most of the false teaching that you are going to encounter in your life week by week, is going to be a branch off of what is true. Cults come out of Christianity. False teaching starts with Christianity and then branches off of Christianity. That's the way that it works. So think, for example, of something like Mormonism. Mormonism uses the words that we use. Mormons talk about God. Mormons talk about the Bible. They talk about grace. They talk about Jesus. So when you first listen to a Mormon and they're trying to convince you, you're going to think, wow, we have so much in common. We both talk about God. We're both focused on Jesus. The only reason we have common ground is because they were among us and they went out from us but they were not really of us. It's because they started here with the gospel we all at first received through the apostles. And then they, through Joseph Smith and others through others, left the original message, whether they claimed that or not. They left the message. That word that we all received, they didn't let it abide in them. They went out from that message and it went out from them. So when you talk with a Mormon and you say, you believe in God, I believe in God, the God of the Bible, that's who I believe in. And then you find out that the God the Mormon believes in was once a human being like you and me who lived on a different planet. He attained Godhood and then he had spirit children with a physical body, he himself, the father, physical body, spirit children, Jesus, Lucifer, and all the rest, Is that the God that you worship? That's not our God. You hear, they follow Jesus, I follow Jesus. And you realize that the Jesus that they follow was not incarnate God. He's not incarnate God because Mormons don't believe in the Trinity. Instead, He is a spirit child through the Father having real physical relations with the Virgin Mary. That is not the Jesus we believe in. That is not Christ come in the flesh. That is a denial of that. False teaching starts with Christianity and then it branches off of it. That's what makes it very subtle. So, what is John saying? Because you'll encounter Mormonism's one example. Maybe you will or won't encounter that. There's all kinds out there. John says, don't worry. Whenever you hear something new, just go back to the original. <laughs> We've got it right here. It's written down, you know. It's not that hard. It's right there. Just go back to the original. If Joseph Smith says, I got a new revelation. Here's the book. Or the Watchtower of the Jehovah's Witnesses put out publications. Here's something new. Or someone claims a new revelation from God. And the teaching it's espousing is very different than the Jesus you find in your Bible. It's not a hard solution. Go back to your Bible. You understand the Bible didn't change. They changed. They went out. So John says here, let what you heard from the beginning, just let it stay in you. It's not something new. It's the old thing. You've heard it. Let it stay in you, no matter what false teaching comes. Other people would like to minimize the Bible Because they say, we should just focus on our relationship with Jesus Christ, and the Bible, if you put too much emphasis there, you just end up with some cold conservatism where you don't love anybody, and you're just in your little Bible holy huddle, and you don't care about anyone. But you understand, if what we're saying here is true, the Bible points us to Jesus. How do you know if you have the true Jesus if you don't find Him here in the Scriptures? Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. These testify about me. How do you know who Jesus is, the person you want to have a relationship with, if you don't search the scriptures like a Berean to know who Christ is? So do not set the word against Christ. The Spirit leads you to Christ, the Word is meant to lead you to Christ, to put your focus there, but to ensure that you're focused on the true Christ and not some false variation that's branched off from Christianity. How do you know that the prosperity gospel that has a Christ who came to give you health and wealth and to improve your life so you have the best one you have right now, how do you know that Christ is not Christ? Because He's not in the Bible. So let the word you heard abide in you. And he says, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, it's no small thing, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. So, be led to Christ by the work of the Spirit and by the word. That brings us to the best part of the text where everything has been heading. We're to be pointed toward Christ by the Spirit and the Word, so kept away from distractions. It's leading us toward Christ. Now you have just the appeal from John, the raw appeal. Have Christ. Look at this in the center of our text, verses 22 and 23. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Again, we have these false teachers in view who went out. Bear in mind that when these people went out from this fellowship teaching a different Christ, Those who it says deny that Jesus is the Christ, almost certainly they weren't just going out saying, Jesus is not the Christ. (laughs) They were not throwing away even the notion of Jesus. They were still Jesus followers. Probably what he means denying that Jesus is the Christ is what we talked about, saying that there is a separate divine Christ and a human Jesus, and the divine Christ came upon him and left him, and the human Jesus died. They would say, these are not the same. Jesus is not the Christ. It's not two natures dwelling together perfectly. No, they are separate. He says, those are anti-Christ. John wants his readers to know one thing about these who went out from their fellowship, who now have a different view of Jesus. Those people are not Christians. Christians. In our day, anyone who claims to follow any Jesus will be called by sociologists Christians. Mormons are labeled as Christians. Anyone who claims to follow Jesus is Christian. That's a term for sociology. They will call themselves Christians. Mormons call themselves Christians. John wants you to know, no matter what sociologists call them, No matter what they call themselves, if they don't have the real Christ, they are not Christians. Do you see that? The way John puts it in the text is, if they don't have the Son, meaning this specific Son, Jesus, the Christ, two natures together, Son, one with God, Son. If they don't have Him, they don't have the Father. They can't have the Father You probably are aware that this is the most offensive part of your faith. It's exclusivity. Meaning that if you agree with John in this passage, you are excluding from those having the Father, you're excluding all who do not have the true Christ. And that's most everyone in the world. Maybe that sounds harsh to you. It certainly sounds harsh to the world to say, not only do you have to be Christian, but you have to be more narrowly Christian. You have to believe the Christ who is taught here in the scriptures, one with God, two natures, divine and human. Now, this will be offensive. There's no way around this. What John's writing right here, he says, if you deny the son, you don't have the father. That's offensive to everyone who doesn't have the son. You understand that? This doesn't mean that we as Christians should work to be intolerant. (laughs) I know that's a popular word, tolerance, intolerance, whatever. This doesn't mean that you should try to be offensive. There are times when we as Christians, we have an offensive teaching here, it's very narrow, but there are times where being offensive to the world is just because we're not kind. Don't do that. Let all of your speech be seasoned with grace. We should be thoughtful in how we engage with outsiders So you shouldn't go around offending everyone by just saying things very bluntly and then after that saying, well I'm a Christian, I have an offensive belief, it's exclusive. Well certainly it is offensive and exclusive, but you can also make it worse, okay? So don't do that. Be kind, be gracious to others. You understand that every day we Christians, we are going out and we are living side by side in your workplace, at school, with Mormons and Muslims and Hindus and nominal Christians, and Roman Catholics, and people who believe all different sorts of things. And when we say that we agree with John that it's exclusive salvation through the true Christ only, that doesn't mean now we hate everyone else. Actually, just to the contrary, we of all people love those who don't agree with us in this because Jesus, the true Jesus, taught us to love our enemies. So we can live in a society like this one, side by side with those who disagree, and we can do it in a civil, gracious way, speaking the truth firmly, but you can do that in a gracious way. So when I say your faith is offensive, I don't mean go make your faith offensive. (laughs) Be gracious, love lost people more than they love themselves, because you care about their souls. But on the other hand, there is an offense in your gospel that cannot be removed And it's what John is talking about right here. Look at it. He says, no one who denies the Son has the Father. And remember, when he's saying the one who denies the Son, he's not talking about atheists. And he's not talking about people who deny that Jesus even exists or is God, or is the Son of God. He's saying they deny the Son because they deny His incarnation. They deny some essential truth about Him. And John is just very blunt about it. If you, if you deny the Son, you don't have the Father. If you confess the wrong Christ, you don't have the Father. This means that the way of looking at religions as roads, different roads leading up the same mountain to the same peak, that is a false way of looking at religious belief. We do not believe that all these roads lead in the same direction to the same God. The roads are on completely separate maps, We agree with what Jesus said of himself. He said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This means that when you look at all the variations of Christianity, they're not all equally good. They're not all equally true. You can't say if it's true for you, true for you, true for me, true for me. Can't say that. There's one Christ, you have to have the actual Christ. The Christ of Mormonism, he's not Christ, he will not get you to God. The Christ of new age philosophy is not Christ and he will not get you to God. The Christ of the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church is not Christ and will not get you to God. The Christ of any cult, the Christ of any derivation of Christian belief is not Christ and will not get you to God. There is one Christ. That's what John is emphasizing here. He is the Christ of the Scriptures. There is only one Christ who brings you to God. He is the Father's only Son, our Lord, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, buried, the third day rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from where he will come to judge the living and the dead. If that's not your Christ, you don't have God. That is the only Christ. Those are the details that Scripture presents. But look positively in verse 23. The Christ I just described to you, if you confess Him, you have the Father. I hope you see how John has built everything on this one foundation, and it is Christ. Everything is about you having, not a Christ, but the true Christ. It's the point of life. And if you confess or have this Christ, your life is fulfilled. That's what you were created for. Because as he says, if you confess the Son, you have the Father. Tell me, what does it mean to have God? (laughs) It's almost frightening to use a word like have with God. And yet that's what the apostle uses. That's the inspired language. If you confess the Son, you have God. He's your God. You fulfill the purpose for which you were created. He is the one road leading up the mountain to God Himself. He takes away your guilt that separates you from the Almighty, and you are ushered into the presence of God Himself even now in a spiritual sense, and you are reconciled to God, a restored relationship with the one who created you for himself. It all comes through Christ. That's why the Spirit's work in your life is to teach you and push you where? Toward mystical visions of heaven? No, toward Christ himself. And the work of the Word is for what? So you can make long diagrams and charts of odd ways that prophecies connect to your newspaper? No. (laughs) It's to push you to Jesus Christ. Have Christ. Do you have Christ? Do you have the true Christ? You can go and sell all your other pearls, all your other precious things, which are good and fine. But if you had to go sell them all, the boat you saved up for, which is fine, it's fine. The nice job the Lord's given you, your family. If you had to sell those pearls and buy the one pearl of great price being Christ, do it. If you have to, with joy, sell all your possessions to get the field with the treasure, then do it. If you are this moment being lured away from Christ, either by some odd false teaching or what's more likely by just the constant call of this world, distractions, money, future, prospects, ambitions, what you want your life to be, and you feel those slowly like a mosquito bite that first injects that numbing agent, slowly numbing you to Christ. You think less of him. He's less interesting to you. And these things are more interesting to you. To gain all of those and to lose Christ, you've lost everything. But if you gain Christ, you have more than everything. As the Oxford scholar C.S. Lewis put it, he who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. I know it feels like you need those things. I know it feels like you need that fulfilling career, and I know it feels like you need that spouse. And you need that kind of marriage and you need those kind of children and you need to live in that particular place and you need to reach that particular personal life goal that you have and you need to be known and you need your spouse to appreciate you and you need other people to know your name and you need the likes on social media and you need to be in vogue and you need your coworkers' approval. You feel like you need those things. You don't need even one of those things on the list. You need Christ because if you have the Son, then you have God. And if you have God, then what else is there for you to get? (laughs) So whatever is required, whatever you have to sell, whatever you have to forget, whatever you have to forsake, whatever you have to deny, to fix your eyes upon Christ. Do that. For if you have the Son, You have the Father, and if you have the Father, you have everything. Let's pray. God, we confess to you that it's easier to believe what John says when we're gathered in corporate worship hearing the word, but it is harder to believe it consistently, to allow this word to abide or remain in us when we leave here and the world begins to call us and distractions arise and discouragements appear and false teaching beckons and the culture pushes, then it's really hard for us. But we have this hope that your spirit, this anointing, is in us and teaches us and guides us And your word to which we give attention every day, your word keeps us focused upon your son. So please help us, Lord. Whatever else we accomplish or do not accomplish, whatever else we gain or do not gain, grant that we might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from you that depends on faith, that we might know him, and might share in his suffering and be conformed to him in his death, that by any means possible we may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Grant us to have Christ, to have him richly, fully, deeply, and in having him to richly, fully, deeply have you, and permit us this day having you to enjoy what we have, all the wealth of our possession, and not to be drawn away by false promises elsewhere. It's in Christ's name we pray these things.